This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN Columbia. Good morning to you. 
good day to you. Wherever you might be as you're listening to this radio program, this is Radio Orbit. My name is Mike Hagan, and it's Monday night, 11 p.m., and we do it every Monday night from 11 p.m. until 2 a.m. It's the 6th of March, 2006, and we've got a wonderful program lined up for you tonight. My guest tonight will be Richard Souder. Uh, Richard is a uh, an expert, one of the probably one of the most renowned experts around, maybe on the entire planet, with regard to the topic that we're going to talk about tonight, and that's underground bases, underground tunnel systems, and uh, under, uh, underground facilities, both military, civilian and otherwise. So we'll be talking with Richard Souter in just a little while, in about 55 minutes or so, about underground bases and underground facilities. And it'll be an interesting program. I've got a lot of really uh, uh, sort of long-term questions, things I've had uh, in the back of my mind for a long time uh, since I worked in Germany about 15 years ago and uh, witnessed some really interesting things underground there when I was living in Bavaria. Uh, so we'll ask Richard uh, about some of those things and... Uh, a lot of other things as well. So that's coming up in just a little while. Richard Souter will be talking about underground bases, underground facilities, tunnel systems, and all kinds of interesting things that are happening underneath the earth, beneath our feet. Okay? All right, thanks to Neil Haig. Wonderful show uh, last week. Wonderful artist and a great writer. And a big thanks to him. Neil Haig. You can always check him out on the web at www.neilhague.com. All right, and that program from last week, as always, is up on the archives and available for download or stream from the website at www.mikehagan.com. And just click on the archives page and last week's program, as well as uh, every previous week for the last year and a half at least, uh, up there on the archive page for you to download and stream and share with your friends, okay? Also, a big thank you to uh, Universal Drum Appeal for providing the music for uh, for last weekend's uh, for last week's show, I should say. Wonderful stuff from uh, Morgan Matsiga and company. And uh, tonight, as a matter of fact, for music, we'll be playing sort of a collection of uh, songs from recent artists that we've played over the last couple of months. And I've got some wonderful music lined up for the next few weeks. As a matter of fact. Uh, I came across a new guitarist whose name is Dave Simmons, and he's got some wonderful music that he's going to share with us over the next couple of weeks, and I just got a, uh, a CD of some, some new songs uh, from Noah Earl, and uh, people who are local and regional, uh, regional listeners should be familiar with Noah Earl. He's a wonderful uh, singer-songwriter uh, from the Columbia area. Actually, I think he's from Kansas City uh, originally, but certainly playing uh, all around Missouri, and a really, really talented young man and someone whose music I'll be very pleased to bring with you uh, to bring to you. So uh, Dave Simmons coming up in a few weeks and uh, Noah Earl as well. And we'll be featuring both of those guys for an entire program over the next few weeks. Okay, and as well, uh, the stuff on the web uh, is available. The stuff is also available on the web. I should say, uh, just go to MikeHagan.com one more time and click on the music page, and you'll be able to see. Uh, musical guests that have been on the program over the last couple of months and also uh, a few downloads that are available. And 
uh, other information about the artists and their music, okay? So all this stuff available on the web, just go over to MikeHagan.com and click over on the music tab, okay? And uh, this is a good chance to mention this as well. Uh, we certainly are always looking for new and interesting music. So if you're out there in the listening area uh, or somehow get a copy of this program and you're a, an aspiring musician, independent musician, I should add. I'm not looking for commercial acts, looking for people that are uh, writing and uh, performing, producing uh, their own music and recording it too. Uh, and the simple fact is uh, we're just looking for people who uh, are in control of their art and that maintain control of their music and can share it with us and allow us to share it with other people and hopefully uh, spread the music and uh, spread the love around a little bit, if you know what I mean. All right, so if you're into that, if you're a musician or if you know someone who is, get a hold of me. Uh, very easy to do. Just get on the web one more time at MikeHagan.com, or you can always email me at OrbitRadio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O. Uh, it's OrbitRadio at AOL.com. And... Send me a note, send me some samples of your music, send me a website with a link where I can go download MP3s or something like that, and we'll check it out. And if it's stuff that fits with the program, we will certainly uh, play it on the air. Okay, so one more time, send me your music. All right, we're really looking for it, and we've had some amazing, wonderful new stuff uh, come up in just the last couple months, and there's great, great stuff out there, and I know it's out there, and I know that... Uh, there are a lot of people that listen to this program that are artists and creatives and musicians. And so I encourage you to share your music with me and with the rest of our listeners, okay? Okay, let's see. Thanks for the nice emails. Hello to everyone who's uh, written in over the last week. A special hello uh, once again to the guys over at Cosmic Waves Radio. We're getting things together over there. You can check that out on the web as well, www.cosmicwavesradio. And uh, Radio Orbit is going to be doing some more uh, work with those guys over the next few weeks and months here. Hello to everyone else uh, who's listening over the web, everyone who's subscribing to the podcast. I'm glad that's working well. It's pretty cool. I'm uh, getting more familiar with the technology now, so uh, I'm glad you guys are using it and that it's working. And also, uh, thanks to people who are listening to the archives that are now being streamed, as I said earlier, over at Cosmic Waves Radio. That's on... Uh, Every night now, pretty much, uh, one of the old programs is being broadcast, usually around 7 o'clock our time, uh, 7 p.m., until about uh, 10 o'clock or so, and that's being broadcast uh, live, well, I should say archived, over the Internet uh, via Cosmic Waves Radio. Okay? And a big thank you to Larry Norger, my wonderful webmaster, who does so much for us and makes so many of these things possible and is doing lots and lots and lots of things behind the scenes all the time. So big thank you to Larry. Couldn't do any of it without you, brother. I love you. Okay, tonight, as I said, Richard Souter coming up. Underground bases, underground facilities, underground tunneling systems and technologies. All that's coming up in about 45 minutes. Next week, John Major Jenkins returning to the program. Uh, of course, the author of Maya Cosmogenesis 2012, among other things, including uh, his... Uh, his most recent book called Pyramid of Fire, which we did not have a chance to talk about when he was on the air, at least not at any length, uh, last time John was on the air a few weeks ago. So we'll talk about his new book, and we have many, many other things to talk about as well. So uh, John Major Jenkins coming back to the program next week. 
The following week after that, on the 20th of March, Michael Sarion returns to the program. We're going to be talking about the Irish origins of civilization. John Lash, my friend and uh, uh, a partner of sorts through the Marion Institute and with my new project uh, that includes Joanna Harcourt-Smith. Of course, John Lash and Joanna are partners in their own project, which is called Meta History, M-E-T-A-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y dot O-R-G. So if you're interested in John Lash, you can see what he's up to at metahistory.org. But he will be on the program with me on March 27th, and that's a show that I've been looking forward to doing for a long time since I met John back in uh, June of last year and then spent some time with him and uh, Joanna in Marion, Massachusetts, just this last, uh, this last October. And some of you may be uh, familiar with that uh, experience as well because I've talked about it on the air a little bit. Okay, So John coming up on the 27th. We've got Stephen Duner, Dennis McKenna, Richard Glenn Bohr. All that stuff's coming up in April. James Kent, wonderful, amazing woman. Rianne Eisler, uh, the author of the remarkable book, The Chalice and the Blade. Rianne will be on the program. I'm not sure exactly when. I spoke with her on the phone today. And I'm not even sure if it will be an interview that is directly associated with Radio Orbit or if it's something that I include with the new project, uh, Future Primitive which will be going um, uh, to, the, uh, to the production room pretty soon here. So regardless, Rian Eisler, again, the amazing author of The Chalice and the Blade, and Rian will be on with me at some point in the future here. Michael Heisen coming back to the program, and lots of other interesting things in the wing. Okay, And uh, I should mention one other thing about Rian Eisler. I'm, I'm fascinated by her. She did some wonderful work with Terrence um, back in the late 80s and the early 90s, they did uh, a number of seminars together, and the primary focus of her work has to do with what's, uh, what's been described as the partnership way. And uh, in a nutshell, the, uh, the partnership way is really a description of sort of a future history uh, outside and beyond the patriarchy, but also outside and beyond matriarchy. There's a, um, there's a certain school of thought that believes that the solution and the answer to the cultural quagmire that we've found ourselves in uh, in the uh, beginnings of the 21st century here, that the solution to those problems is a rejection of patriarchy and paternalism male dominance hierarchies, and a return or a, uh, a new movement to matriarchy, a woman-dominated uh, situ- uh, situation. While the, the, the partnership way is, uh, rejects both of those ideas and basically says that, uh, that neither uh, a dominant feminine or a dominant masculine paradigm is a solution, that the solution is a partnership paradigm between both the masculine and the feminine. And it's a wonderful concept. It has historical precedent, primarily in the uh, late Neolithic, and we see remnants of it in uh, Minoan Crete and places like this uh, that, have, uh, that have much history uh, that's been revealed over the last 15 or 20 years and stuff that's still very fresh on the radar screen uh, but highly relevant and really important. So really excited to speak with Rian Eisler 
uh, sometime uh, coming up in the next uh, in the next couple of months. Okay. All right. So uh, let's see what else here. We are going to uh, talk with Richard in just a few minutes here. Play a little bit of music here, I think, and uh, we'll start things off with. Hmm. Let's play a song by. I haven't played this for a while. He was on the. We featured his music a number of uh, months ago, actually. His name is Ron Erickson. And this particular song is called One of These Daydreams. So, Ron, thanks for the music. And everybody else, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. One more time, Ron Erickson, One of These Daydreams. Ron Erickson, one of these daydreams. And this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. 
So I just got back from Chicago. I went to Chicago for the weekend. I took Friday off work, and uh, Thursday night I went into Chicago and spent a few days with some friends up there. Had a wonderful time. It's always interesting to go up to the big city and see what's happening uh, in the uh, metropolitan communities, especially Chicago, sort of a uh, uh, sort of a bellwether town. It's a great place to go and get a good feel for sort of what's going on in uh, big metropolitan areas in general. But I had a real nice time. Uh, good to be back, though. Looking forward to doing the program tonight. All right, let's see. You know, let me give out contact information one more time again real fast. Uh, if you have uh, anything you'd like to share with me or um, ideas, questions, concerns, whatever, you can always email me at orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, orbitradio at AOL.com. And the website, of course, you can uh, you can always contact me directly from the website at www.mikehagan.com. And the number's here in the studio, 573-874-5676, 1-800-895-5676 if you're outside of the uh, 573 area code. All right? Okay, let's do space weather here. Some interesting things happening, actually. Uh, the sun, uh, if you have been listening to the program, you'll know that for the last few weeks, even the last couple months maybe, uh, with a couple of minor uh, exceptions, the sun has been very, very quiet, and virtually no sunspots uh, have been visible on the solar disk for the last few weeks, and it has been just a blank slate. And this is something that uh, we've actually been waiting for for quite some time. The solar physicists will tell us now that this is solar minimum and that it has finally arrived, uh, although the activity over the last seven years and longer than that, actually. I guess 99, 98 is when things really started getting you know, getting getting strange. But uh, at any rate, uh, the sun has had very interesting and uh, less than normal activity over the last six or seven years. But uh, they're telling us now that the sun is reaching solar minimum, which uh, usually means that something else really strange will happen right around the corner. So <laughs> expect me to have some wild news next week. But... That may or may not be true. The uh, scientists tell us no, that things are going to be calm now for quite some time, and then uh, uh, solar minimum will then slowly re-energize itself and uh, move back up toward another solar maximum, which they would uh, normally have expected around uh, 2011, 2012. Uh, but it seems like uh, the middle of this cycle at least seems to be stretched out a little bit. But... Uh, again, these cycles are things that we've only been recording and monitoring for a relatively short period of time uh, since Galileo's time. As a matter of fact, Galileo was one of the first uh, to uh, track sunspot counts and this sort of thing. So uh, although that may seem like a long time ago, it's really not very long at all. And the sun has been burning for a long, long time and all of these things are cyclical, and there are cycles within cycles. And so the cycles that we've been watching and that we've uh, identified over the last few hundred years may simply be uh, cycles within larger cycles, and there may be smaller cycles within them as well. So it's very difficult to say what's, uh, what's really around the corner with any of these things. But uh, from what we know, it does look like the sun is uh, approaching a solar minimum right now. Okay. All right, on Jupiter, uh, many of you who uh, have 
paid attention in your science classes will know that there's a phenomenon on Jupiter that's called the red spot. It's been called the great red spot. And it has been uh, a giant storm. At least this is, again, what uh, the scientists tell us, a giant storm that's been brewing on the planet Jupiter for uh, for centuries, as a matter of fact. And it has uh, uh, furious winds and uh, uh, takes up a huge area of space on the planet. And, in fact, I think that the... Um, uh, I think that the Great Red Spot actually is something like, uh, oh, I don't know, 15,000 miles across or something like that. You could put two diameters of the Earth inside of it. So anyway, but there's a, um, uh, there's a new red spot now that has appeared on, Ju- uh, on Jupiter. And it is uh, about half the size of the original one, which means it is still absolutely gigantic. And it's very similarly the same color. And it's been it's been being observed uh, for some six years now, uh, but just now getting a little bit more attention. Uh, there were a couple of smaller, uh, two or three smaller storms. They believe that they collided and uh, somehow created this new red spot in some sort of a merger. And um, at first, when 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 the uh, Observations of this thing began a number of years ago. It was white in color, uh, but now it's turning red. And uh, I don't know, maybe this is a sign of some sort of intensica- uh, intensification, or um, who knows? Maybe it'll grow bigger than the original red spot. Maybe it will dissipate. Nobody knows, I guess. But uh, you can watch and you can see these because they're big enough to see uh, through backyard telescopes. So if you're interested in the great red spot, and the new uh, red spot, which they're calling Red Junior, in their always uh, creative and unique titles for these things, huh? from NASA. But anyway, the great red spot and Red Junior up there on Jupiter spinning around, and you can actually look at them yourselves if you have a decent uh, telescope and know where to look. And if you want to know where to look, uh, hop on the web and go over to MikeHagan.com, click on the Space Weather page, and there will be links there leading to all kinds of interesting things that have to do with astronomy and uh, looking at things up in the sky, most of the time at night. All right, all right. there is uh, a comet, actually, that can be seen in the mornings right now. And if, uh, if you wake up, uh, you'll have to be up before the crack of dawn, uh, it'll be just before dawn, but if you look in the east before sunrise, you will see, uh, you'll see a star, and it'll, uh, it'll look sort of fuzzy and probably be, be just barely visible to the naked eye, but certainly uh, a no-problem target for, again, for backyard telescopes or for um, binoculars. And this particular comet is called uh, Comet Pudgmansky. I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago during space weather. And it is a naked-eye comet uh, that is uh, very close uh, to the horizon right now on, uh, in the mornings in the northern hemisphere. And like I say, just before sunrise, look toward the east, and you'll, you'll be able to see uh, Comet Pudgmansky hanging there uh, in the eastern sky before sunrise. Okay, lots of comets actually, as a matter of fact, right now 
uh, on the radar, so to speak. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, six comets that are either at perihelion right now or within the next day or two. Perihelion means uh, the comet is at its closest approach to the sun. And the opposite of that is a term that they call aphelion. And aphelion means it's at its furthest distance from the sun. But right now there are a number of uh, of comets that are either uh, approaching perihelion or approaching Earth, making their closest uh, uh, approaches to Earth. And I won't go through their names, but there's at least six of them that I came across today. Um, today is also the 20th anniversary of the Vega 1 flyby of Halley's Comet. And there was also another um, spacecraft that was called Vega 2 that was launched around the same time that uh, that flew by... Uh, Halley's Comet uh, on March 9th. There was a whole lot, 20 years ago in 1986, there was there was a whole lot of interest in uh, <clears throat> in Halley's Comet. And there were a number of probes that flew by and collected data and imagery from Halley's Comet 26 uh, or 20 years ago back in 1986. It is also the 45th anniversary of Sputnik 9, that's March 9th, uh, in 1961, that was a, uh, a Russian satellite, of course, and another one that carried a dog. This dog's name was Chernushka, and uh, hopefully Chernushka was okay. Another uh, pretty thoughtless uh, experiment there. And uh, let's see, what else do I have to mention to you here? Well, let me just tell you a little bit about what's happening in the uh, in the sky and with the planets and the moon uh, this month, March is an interesting month. Of course, we have the, the uh, equinox coming up uh, toward the end of the month on the 20th. But right now, okay, listen, um, at dusk, you'll be able to find Saturn in the sky. Saturn will be in the east, uh, east-southeast, I guess, and it'll be about halfway overhead. It'll be at about 45 degrees toward the beginning of the month, month of March right now. And as the month... Uh, moves on, Saturn will move very high into the uh, into the sky, into the south-southeast sky. Mars, uh, right now, early in the month, uh, early in the month, is um, in the southwest. If you look toward the southwest, right at dusk, as the sun is going down, you'll see Mars over there, and it's pretty high in the southwest sky. Uh, at the month end, toward the end of the month, uh, Mars will have moved over to the west. Southwest, you'll be able to see Mercury. In the west, uh, in the twilight hours, in the last few days of March, I mentioned Jupiter a few minutes ago. The moon, hmm, let's see, the the moon, I guess, is about a quarter moon right now on March 6th. That means the full moon will be March 14th. That's coming up in just about uh, seven days. And as always, interesting stuff happening up there in the skies above our heads. So take a look. Take a moment, stop, look up. Always things to see up there, okay? And if you have a little telescope, uh, some interesting things to to view as well. So go on the web and check out spaceweather.com or check out uh, the space weather page at mikehagan.com. And there are links always uh, from both of those places to find out about all kinds of other interesting things uh, that are happening up there in space, okay? All right, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. 
Let me get my guest on the phone here. We'll come back, talk about a few stories that are in the news, and then we'll get on with things with Richard Souter. And we'll talk about underground bases, underground facilities, underground tunneling projects. And I should also mention uh, the website for Dr. Souter, and that is www.souterzone, S-A-U-D-E-R-Z-O-N-E, souterzone.com. All right, and you can get there directly, or you can get there from uh, MikeHagan.com as well, okay? All right, let's get uh, things moving along here. This is a song that was featured a few weeks ago from a local band called Rutherford, and this song is called The Breeze. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. We rush around to shops and stores We spend our nights behind closed doors Arms around our first class horse, and we all want something more. So we cut ourselves with words and lies. Forget about these hopeless lies. Skies are covered with.
Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. It's about 11.45, just a few minutes before that, actually. On Monday evening, the 6th of March, 2006. We've got about 15 minutes, and we'll be bringing our guest on the air, Richard Souter, Dr. Richard Souter, as a matter of fact. He'll be with us for the rest of the program from midnight until 2 a.m., and we'll be talking with Richard about underground bases and tunnel systems, and underground facilities, and underwater uh, systems and facilities as well. And that's coming up in just about 15 minutes. If you want to get a leg up and uh, see what we'll be chatting about, hop on the web, go over to MikeHagan.com, and uh, just scroll down the front page there. You'll see tonight's guest, Richard Souter, and you can also get directly to Richard's uh, website by typing in www.souderzone, S-A-U-D-E-R-Z-O-N-E.com, souderzone.com. He's got a very uh, interesting website that's very simple to uh, navigate and has lots of very interesting information on it. So uh, either jump on my site and go over to Richard's site or go there directly at souderzone.com. All right, we'll be on the air with Richard in just about 15 minutes. All right, let's see. What do we got in the news here? Lots of stuff, but I'll try to pick a few out here that uh, I thought were uh, important or relevant. Here's one. It's very important and relevant. It is titled, Tune In, Turn On, Evolve. And this is from the uh, Toronto Globe and Mail, one of the largest newspapers up in uh, Canada. All right, and this won't be news uh, to many of the people that listen to this program, but uh, uh, check it out. On the walls of dozens of caves in southern France and northern Spain lie some of the most majestic works of art ever painted. 
drawn 25,000 to 40,000 years ago. The paintings have puzzled anthropologists since they were discovered more than four decades ago. Where did this astonishing display of talent come from? Why did these prehistoric societies decide to paint these scenes in such remote locations? And what inspired them to paint the strange array of bisons, horses, therianthropes? A scientific consensus of sorts has finally emerged on one of those questions. Although there are still dissenters, a majority of anthropologists now champion the theory that the paintings in Europe were the work of shamans and in part the product of trance states likely induced by psilocybin, the psychoactive ingredient in some species of mushroom. Now this is a, a, a long and involved article. I suggest everybody get on the web, go over to my news page and read it. Uh, it is a remarkable statement, actually, that last sentence. I'll say it one more time, that there's a consensus that has emerged. And that is that, that the cave paintings were the work of shamans and in part the product of trans states likely induced by psilocybin. Uh, a very important and important uh, statement there. And something else that I want to point out that should be obvious uh, but is not mentioned in this article, and it's shameful as a matter of fact, uh, that Terence McKenna's name is not mentioned in this article. And, uh, of course, without the work of Terence McKenna, this idea would never have even... Uh, been discussed, and the work that he did in Food of the Gods um, was uh, the most outstanding piece of work uh, to date uh, that outlines this particular theory. And uh, Graham Hancock, as a matter of fact, who's mentioned, who is mentioned in this article, uh, and who was on the program just a few weeks ago, as a matter of fact, in December, uh, Graham has a new book which is called Supernatural, and he. He brings this uh, this this theory uh, back into uh, into play as well, and and I've and, I, and I've spoken with Graham about it, and and uh, and Graham certainly understands Terence's uh, connection to these ideas, and I appreciate that. So, at any rate, uh, good news either way, because the significance of the mushroom is uh, slowly but surely against all. Uh, just against all defense. I mean, it has just been uh, a very difficult time, but uh, the mushroom slowly uh, taking its place back uh, where it deserves to be. And hopefully uh, there are some political and legal implications that come from these things. And it's important to push those things really hard right now. It's very, very important. These things are uh, highly, highly relevant in uh, in the situation that we're in right now in this culture, in the West in particular. Okay, let's see. Uh, Here's another interesting story. The mystery-shrouded sky disk of Nebra. This story comes from uh, from Germany. A group of German scientists has deciphered the meaning of one of the most spectacular archaeological discoveries in recent years. The mystery-shrouded sky disk of Nebra was used as an advanced astronomical clock. The purpose of the 3,600-year-old disk of Nebra which caused a worldwide sensation when it was discovered and brought to the attention of the German public in 2002, is no longer a matter of speculation. A group of German scholars who studied this archaeological gem has discovered evidence which suggests that the disk was used as a complex astronomical clock for the harmonization of solar and lunar calendars. This is a clear expansion of what we knew about the meaning and function of the sky disk, said archaeologist Harold Meller. Again, this story in its entirety can be found on the web, but very interesting stuff indeed. 
sounds a little bit like that Antictheria device uh, that was discovered so long ago. But uh, the ancients continue to astound us with their, uh, with their sophistication and the mythology uh, of the primitive is one that is really being realized as only that. Uh, to anybody who's paying attention, uh, if anything, it appears now that, that we are in a sort of a decline and that at, uh, at times in the distant past there were civilizations that were quite, uh, quite advanced. And uh, although we have our technology now, uh, there are many, uh, many areas of, uh, of human civilization today that uh, are considerably less advanced, I would argue, than they were uh, thousands and thousands of years ago. Here's another one. Check this out. Uh, book challenges pre-1491 myths. This is from uh, the NW Times. When Christopher Columbus crashed into the Bahamas, he had no way to know that there were in the Americas more population estimated 100 million people than in all of Europe, and they had been here longer. Europeans saw a pristine wilderness full of guileless savages. According to Charles Mann's 2005 book, 1491 New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus, we were all taught wrong in grade school. Archaeology and new scholarship has painstakingly sought out the true facts amid the myths of American Indians. Man does a superb, uh, superb job of answering the questions. For example, where did the population that once lived and lined the Atlantic coast go? Hundreds of European ships touched the coast before the pilgrims landed in 1620 on the site of Patuxet Village. The coast was a cemetery 200 miles long. The killer was smallpox, for which the American natives had no immunity. The epidemic killed cultures as well as people. Again, uh, a significantly longer article. Uh, but uh, kudos to Charles Mann for this particular piece. Uh, but there has been, uh, it's again a little bit misleading, the idea that we're just learning this stuff uh, is not, not true at all. Uh, the genocide that was undertaken against the native peoples of this nation uh, is one that has been known uh, ever since it was, it was done in the uh, beginning, you know, some... 500 years ago and getting really intense uh, in the 1800s and uh, culminating in the early and mid stages of, uh, of the 20th century. But uh, smallpox certainly did kill uh, a huge number of Native Americans. And in fact, uh, certainly there were cases where it was by accident. Smallpox was introduced into that culture by accident uh, just, just because... Uh, uh, when the when the Europeans landed here, it came with them. But once it was realized that it was such an effective killer against the Native Americans, then it was actually used as a weapon. It's one of the first cases of uh, uh, biological warfare documented that you can learn about. Uh, smallpox was purposely embedded in blankets and clothing that were then given. Uh, to Native American populations and therefore infecting them and spreading the disease in order to kill them and to remove them from the land. And as uh, Charles Mann points out here, a hundred million Native Americans populated this country in the 1500s. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about the Holocaust 
in Europe, uh, where the German military eliminated some six million Jewish people, and lots of other people too, Catholics and communists, and really anybody who wasn't uh, going along with the program, uh, but the Jewish people certainly took the brunt of that particular attack. And it uh, was a tragedy, no doubt, what happened in the, in, the mid uh, in the mid-1900s in Germany and in Europe. But, but it is not unprecedented. And uh, the idea that the Holocaust is somehow the poster child for genocide minimizes all of the other occurrences of it, I think. And this one that happened in our country is a, uh, a wound that has not healed and it will not heal until it is dealt with uh, in a manner that is uh, sufficiently respectful to the human beings and the cultures that it destroyed. So, uh, if you're interested in that story, get it on the web at uh, www.mikehagan.com. Click on the news page, and uh, it's a book by Charles Mann. Okay. All right, here's one last one here. Pretty interesting story here. Monkey see, monkey help. Is it altruism? This is uh, just came out today from uh, the Boston Herald. Would you run into a burning? Uh, would you run into a burning building to save a stranger's life? Would a chimpanzee do the same? Acts of altruism, helping an unrelated creature with no apparent benefit to yourself, have long been an evolutionary puzzle because the behavior seemingly contradicts the notion of survival of the fittest. Until now, humans were the only members of the animal kingdom with a proven record of behaving altruistically. But a study published in the journal Science last week suggests that both human children and chimpanzees have altruistic tendencies. The study's lead author, Felix Warnikin, said the study suggests that rudimentary helping behavior evolved before humans split from chimpanzees about six million years ago. At least this shows us that some rudimentary form of helping was already present in our evolutionary ancestor, said Warnikin, a developmental, uh, developmental psychologist from Germany who is on a fellowship at Harvard. It clarifies something about the evolutionary trajectory. It tells us that we are already prepared for biologically what comes mainly from learning. Uh, and I have a couple comments about this real quick. First of all, the concept of survival of the fittest, pure Darwinian evolution is one that is, uh, um, is misleading these days. If you talk to most evolutionary biologists these days, uh, at least the ones that are worth their salt in my opinion, they will tell you that nature uh, is now much better understood as an intense cooperation uh, between many, many different uh, levels and different ontologies. And it is a symbiosis uh, of, of great, great, great sophistication. And certainly uh, there is feeding that goes on and uh, uh, there are uh, food chains and these sorts of things. But the old idea that the uh, that the sharpest claws and the meanest and most aggressive always uh, dominate and win uh, is is a fallacy, quite frankly. Uh, there's another comment here uh, that says humans uh, until now were the only members of the animal uh, kingdom with a proven record of behaving altruistically. This again is misleading. The dolphin uh, community and the orca uh, whales have been documented uh, to show altruistic behavior. Elephants have shown altruistic behavior. Uh, apes, we know this now. Uh, I think you can argue, and Rupert Sheldrake argues very well, that dogs uh, exhibit, frankly and obviously, altruistic behavior. Uh, 
and I think that the key to this whole thing is something that Joseph Chilton Pierce pointed out to us in December when we, when we had the great privilege to speak with Joseph Chilton Pierce, my friend, who I absolutely love uh, and, uh, and respect. And uh, Joe mentions Charles Darwin's second treatise and his most amazing work that was called The Descent of Man. We're not talking about Origin of the Species here. We're talking about Darwin's second work. And it was his seminal work. And it was called The Descent of Man. And it uh, explains perfectly clearly uh, what this article uh, describes. And the reason that nobody or very few people are familiar with The Descent of Man is because it caused a lot of problems in the established institutionalized ideas because it doesn't quite fall in line with the dominator model uh, that is uh, the current ruler of this particular paradigm. All right, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We're going to take one more quick break here, play a little piece of music. We'll come back with my guest Richard Souter in just a few minutes. We'll talk about underground bases, underground facilities, tunneling technology, all kinds of interesting things with Richard. He's got a number of books that he's written We'll get a little bit more information in just a few minutes. In the meantime, let's listen to a quick one here from, uh, from Lotigi. They were on the program a few weeks ago. I like their music. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. It's straight up midnight. This one is called Clowns.
You're listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. That's right, you are listening to Mike Hagan and this is Radio Orbit. It's just a few minutes after midnight on the 7th of March 2006. My guest tonight, his name is Dr. Richard Souter. He's the author of a number of books, including the amazing uh, work that was called Underground Bases and Tunnels. He's written a number of other books, including Underwater and Underground Bases, Kundalini Tales, and uh, has a website that uh, outlines much of his material at www.souderzone.com. That's S-A-U-D-E-R. Z-O-N-E dot com and we're going to find out a little bit more about Richard Souter right now so let's say hello Richard Souter welcome to Radio Orbit thanks very much for being with us tonight well thank you for having me on you're very welcome I've uh, been wanting to for quite some time I've been following your work for a number of years uh, and uh, this was a great opportunity to uh, uh, to get together and, and ask you a whole bunch of stuff that's been on my mind for a long time so I'm really looking forward to it well, absolutely. I'm, I'm looking forward to it myself. Great. Rich, Richard, uh, for, the, for the audience, where are you? I think you're in Texas. Uh, where exactly? Uh, South Central Texas. I'm down in San Antonio, which has been very hot this winter. Actually, it was in the 80s today, and I think it got up to about 86 or 87 yesterday. Is that right? Which even for down here in Texas is awfully hot in the wintertime. Yeah, has it been like that the whole uh, the whole winter? Yes, it's been very mild. Uh, we've had a fair number of days where it's been in the 80s. And even though uh, we do have a subtropical climate in San Antonio, during the wintertime, you don't expect a lot of 85-degree uh, days, but we seem to have had them this year. All right. Well, look, let's um, let's start things out with a little bit of background, both for myself and for the listeners uh, the the work that you do is very interesting, and uh, there's got to be an interesting story behind it, how you got involved in it. So why don't you give us a little background on who you are and where you come from and how you got involved in this uh, in this work, okay? Well, you know, I, I guess you could even say it started back when I was in elementary school, about uh, six or seven years old. I won a spelling bee. I think it was about in the first grade, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And um, the teacher gave me uh, a, a little picture book on caves and spelunking. And, man, did that fire a little six-year-old's imagination. I paged that thing and looked at the pictures of these guys with miner's helmets with lights on on them uh, going to these passages underground, and it was fascinating. I, um, of course, uh, outgrew the book as the years went by, and um, it wasn't until later... When I, uh, much later, when I had moved out to the Southwest to pursue my uh, doctorate, mm-hmm. that um, I heard people talking about alleged uh, clandestine underground bases and secret tunnel systems through which um, I heard people alleging that uh, purported little gray aliens. <laughs> and clandestine elements of the United States military were running tube shuttle trains back and forth between um, 
covert underground bases and installations and research facilities where they had all manner of strange uh, programs going on, including uh, biological and genetic engineering. And I didn't know what to make of these stories. Uh, it was the first time I'd heard them. Now um, I think stories like that um, are more out there in the culture than they would have been 15 or 20 years ago. I was, I was going to ask you, Richard. What give us a time frame of when 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 you were getting the first uh, the first earful of these sort of stories? Well, that would have been back in the late 1980s. Okay. Um, and it was pretty new for me. Um, I moved over there from the East Coast, and um, I um, didn't know what to think of these stories, uh, which I heard anecdotally and uh, also read a little bit about in the journal uh, Sedona Journal of Emergence which is published out of Sedona, uh, Arizona, and it's still published now. I began reading it when I moved to the Southwest, and they had some channeled information in that magazine. Uh, Robert Shapiro and and others um, channeling various um, sources that were um, coming through with this type of information, but I heard it independently from other sources that had nothing to do with the Sedona Journal of Emergence or their featured channelers. And so I was just bogged down with the very grueling uh, doctoral program. And if any of your listeners have been through a doctoral program, you know what I'm talking about. It really puts you through your paces. What was your your doctoral study in? Uh, Political science. I have a Ph.D. in political science. Okay. The, The course load was pretty heavy. So um, I didn't have time really to pursue uh, this question uh, in the first couple or three years of my work. But after I finished my coursework and did my comprehensive exams and passed them, and had begun uh, at my um, the um, uh, prospectus for my thesis accepted and and had begun uh, researching and writing my thesis, uh, I had more uh, control over my schedule and was able to undertake this uh, other research that I had really been itching to look into. So I did a little bit of a literature search, and I discovered, hey, there are uh, underground bases. Uh, Most of the ones I found with my first uh, shallow cut uh, through the uh, data uh, were on the East Coast in the so-called Federal Arc, Hmm. ARC. But clearly it's a it's a pun. It's a play on words, and clearly it's a play on uh, ARK, Noah's Ark. In this sense, the Federal Ark is a um, a, um, a region, in the, basically in the Mid-Atlantic region on the east coast of North America, uh, within maybe one, two, no more than three hundred miles of of the Washington D.C. area, and within this so-called Federal Ark. There's situated uh, quite a number. To me, the number is unknown, but I believe it could easily be dozens, perhaps scores or more, of uh, underground facilities of varying depths and uh, sizes and uh, degree of technological sophistication. But they are there, a fair number of them. Um, And they are part of what's called COG, which is Continuity of Government Program. Mm -hmm. And this has been in place for years and years uh, under both uh, Democratic and Republican administrations or regimes or whatever word you want to 
used to refer to what we have in our in terms of governments in this country and um I suppose it could have had its genesis in the immediate post World War two period when um the uh executive office of the president, which is in popular parlance known as the White House basically mm-hmm. uh decided to established through uh, the so-called military office, which is part of the White, White House. It's an office that uh, liaises between the Pentagon and the executive office of the president, but through the, uh, or under the auspices of the military office in the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, the government undertook to construct a series of, of scores of very deeply buried um, presidential command centers and bunkers and hideaways or bolt holes, whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. um, all around the country. Many of them were in the eastern part of the country, but not only. And a great deal of money was lavished on these in great secrecy. So this took place in the 50s and early 60s. Uh, I, I believe this type of activity is ongoing to the present day, uh, funded to a much greater level and with a very high level of, of secrecy. That is... The only thing I can conclude after um, more than 10 years of of document research, archival research, talking to people, having people feed me tips and leads, receiving anonymous emails, letters, and um, personal conversations with a wide variety of people, uh, most of them not in government, but a few who were, and uh, some in the military, some out, etc., people from all walks of life, men and women, um, older people, um, younger people in their 20s and 30s, um, but many people have given me bits and pieces, dribs and drabs of information. You put it all together, along with the documentation I found, and I have no question, in fact, the evidence uh, strongly indicates that there has been a massive, decades-long, ongoing, underground uh, excavation and construction program in this country, carried out under great secrecy. Now, the the COG program, Continuity of Government program, uh, is part and parcel of that. In my view, it's not all of it, but it is part of it. Now, who's in the Continuity of Government? Well, uh, cabinet-level agencies, uh, FEMA, and, of course, now FEMA has been folded into the uh, new Department of Homeland Security. So, um, really, and under... Homeland Security, everything is secret. Um, I don't know what fool would, would put in a Freedom of Information Act request to Homeland Security and expect to get a straight answer in George Bush's administration. I haven't even tried. Um, but I'm, I, don't, I don't doubt that much of this has just been folded under the purview and command and control of Homeland Security. Um, now, <clears throat> so... I, I found out uh, when I did my initial research about some things like, um, of course, the FEMA, the big FEMA base, which is large and pretty sophisticated and rather old now. It's it's about 50 years old now. It was made back in the 1950s. It's under Mount Weather in Northern Virginia, about uh, an hour's drive or less west of the Washington, D.C. Right, area right, right. in the central Appalachians. Um, hey, Rich- then, hey, Richard. How 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 deep? When you say that these, how deep are the deepest ones of these that we know about? Oh well, the the ones on the open record, Mount Weather goes down hundreds of feet. Mm-hmm. Um, 
than their site R, uh, which is part of the Fort Ritchie complex. Oh, that's Ravens Rock up there in the northeast. Yes, it's on the uh, it's on the border in the border area between uh, Maryland and Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, that'd go down hundreds of feet. Then you have the NORAD facility uh, under Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado, uh, and that is. Um, Given that it's there's quite a large mountain over top of it, I think uh, parts of it go down something like 1,500 feet. Wow. And I wouldn't be surprised if it goes even deeper. Um, and so those are some of the publicly known ones. Um, then you have the ones uh, like um, in the Monsanto base, uh, which initially was under control, I believe, of the Air Force and the Atomic Energy Commission, <laughs> built back in the late 40s and early 50s. This is... Uh, just southeast southeast of Albuquerque, about five or ten miles, um, on the far eastern uh, fringe of Kirtland Air Force Base, the Kirtland Air Force Base Sandia National Labs Complex, which is southeast of right. of Albuquerque, New Mexico, that was built in the late 40s, early 50s, uh, still in use. I think the Department of Energy now uses that facility in part for storage of low-grade nuclear waste, but. Um, <clears throat> That one, uh, from documentation I've obtained, goes down hundreds of feet. I suspect it may have deeper levels that aren't publicly known, but uh, the, the parts that are publicly known, I think, go down at least five or 600 feet. Hmm. Oh. Uh, um, so so uh, at the minimum, the ones that can be gotten at through, through public documentation go down easily, five, 600 feet or, or 1,000 feet or more. And then you have facilities such as the DOE um a waste isolation pilot plant, which is near Carlsbad, uh, in New Mexico, and which is uh, something like 2,000, 1,000, uh, uh, 2, feet underground, um, and that's way down there. That complex spreads out over about one square mile. Um, wow. Well, that's that's nothing. That's well within the state of the art. Yeah, well, this um, that, that was another question: is that, like square footage? How big? You see, you mentioned this big FEMA facility. Like, give, give us an idea of how how big that might be. I can't give you the square footage off the top of my head. I don't know if I've ever seen a square footage figure, but it can accommodate uh, in it when it's buttoned up, if it buttoned up, uh, and sealed off in a crisis situation. Uh, I believe it can accommodate. Uh, uh, several hundred people, upwards of 2,000. Wow. In other words, it would be like a small town a small underground. Small. Right, right. Uh, with, with streets, its own power generation, its own telephone exchange, uh, supercomputers, um, two reservoirs, actually small ponds or lakes underground that you can paddle around in, in rowboats. They actually have rowboats down there. No kidding. Yes. Um, well, of course, if you have these uh, ponds, you have to go in and service them. You'll have intake pipes and so mm-hmm, forth, and mm-hmm. you need to roll out there to get to the things. Um, then um, they'll have commissaries, um, living living areas, um, recreational facilities, uh, work areas. In other words, pretty large and deep. And mind you, that's uh, circa 1950s technology and right. size. Amazing. Um, so my guess is, if that was what was state-of-the-art 50 years ago, and uh, that state of the art today, it was very highly secret 50 years ago. Today, of course, um, it's more or less common knowledge, which means that, to my mind, and, and that of most other informed observers, um, um, of course, Mount Weather would be straight in the crosshairs. 
of the Chinese or the Russians or 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 uh, whoever, uh, the Pentagon might get into a shooting nuclear war with. Hmm. And certainly a facility like um, the Monsanto facility at Kirtland, the, the uh, NORAD facility at Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado, right. Raven Rock, Mount Weather, all the known underground facilities would, would have multi-megaton uh, uh, warheads coming in on them, uh, multiple multi-megaton warheads coming in on them. Um, I, I talked with a guy who was in uh, Air Force Intelligence, and he said that uh, after the fall of communism in, in the late 1980s, that um, in the East German archives, um, the United States Air Force discovered that um, Cheyenne Mountain was targeted uh, by the Kremlin for something like uh, 10 or 20 H-bombs that would come in at like five or ten minute intervals, one after another, multi-megaton warheads, and the mountain would have been reduced to radioactive gravel. My gosh. So you might say, well, we're 1,500 feet underground. You might take one hit, you might take two, but you're not going to take ten 20 megaton hits one after the other in a two-hour period. That literally just destroy the entire mountain, in other words. just one Well, not only that, they would approximately vaporize half of Colorado in the process. Right. I mean, it just melts everything and sucks every bit of oh, oxygen. Oh, well, and I mean. you, you would have this vast radioactive dust cloud. Uh, and, of course, they would do that with every sensitive target. Uh, the Pentagon has a deeply buried command center beneath it as well. I've been told of at least six... Uh, levels, I would guess it goes much deeper than sure, that. Sure. Um, and of course, the one under the White House. You know, you would assume the White House would have at least a, two or three multi-megaton warheads coming in on it, because it also has a very deep underground facility. In my first book, um, I actually spoke with someone uh, who's been down in the bunker under the White House, and this person went there um, under very I would even say highly unusual circumstances, and to this day, um, my inf my source does not have any clue as to why uh, she went there, hmm. uh, but she did nonetheless. Richard, work yes. Let's give out the uh, the website again real fast, and, and I want to mention that first book that you're going to talk about here. Um, uh, my guest tonight is Richard Souter, and information about him and his work can be found at SouderZone.com, S-A-U-D-E-R-Z-O-N-E.com. And this first book that we're going to talk about uh, a little bit is called Underground Bases and, and Tunnels, tunnels right. What is the Government Trying to Hide? And um, <clears throat> it's been out about 11 years now, but still selling well and finding new readers. The, uh, it truthfully has turned into an underground bestseller, uh, pun completely intended, much to my total surprise. Um, I, I was a person who never set out to write a book. In fact, I was sitting in a coffee shop in L.A. Uh, back in the uh, summer of, well, it wasn't, I guess it was like the fall of 1992, something like that, uh, or 93, somewhere along through there. And um, I had uh, found some documents. I was very early, at a very early stage in my research, um, not envisioning at all that I was going to write a book or books, uh -huh. as I've, I've written three now and I'm working on a fourth one. But I had no no concept, no idea, no inkling I was going to write a book. Um, 
and I was sitting there talking to a couple of guys. Uh, we had some interest in common, and um, I'm not from L.A., but I happened to be out there. And um, so we were sitting around, and it was in the morning, maybe about 9 or 9.30, and I was showing them these documents, and one of them, uh, who was in a very interesting professional position, albeit not working for the government, said, Richard, I think I think you have a book here. I think you should write a book. Huh based on these documents, because I kept finding more and more. Right. And um, I said, well, you know, that's flattering, but I don't think so. <laughs> um, and I, so I left L.A. a couple of days later and took my documents back home with me um, and put it out of my mind. I wasn't going to write a book. I just dismissed the thought and didn't even reflect on it whatsoever mm-hmm. at all for weeks. Until uh, one day, I was sitting there in front of the computer, and it hit me like a thunderbolt. I am going to write a book. Hmm. I just flipped 180 degrees within uh, the span of two or three seconds. Why? Uh, I don't know why to this day. I don't know why. Um, Because I I just can't answer why. Hmm. I went from absolutely no, categorically, emphatically, no. I, Richard Souter, will not... Write a book. I'm not going to write a book, and it's just not going to happen. Right. And I flip 180 degrees within two seconds after weeks, and it just came to me out of the blue. And I began to write that same day. And um, in a sense, I haven't stopped researching and writing since. Um, now, getting back to this visit beneath the White House, um, as I go along. Through the years, I keep finding out more and more until I've reached a point where I realize there's just a lot underground. A lot. And the people who put it there and who run operations and programs and projects down there, and who have, Mike, they've got workforces down there. Mm. People are working down there, unbeknownst to us. Although now, I'm starting to know that, see? And so are you, and so are people listening to the program. You know, you go through life, you go through school, elementary school, high school. A lot of people go away to college or to to a university somewhere, maybe even get a graduate degree or two or three, as I have. Mm-hmm. And you get propagandized. Yeah. You get told what to think, how to think about it, what not to think about, what to say, what not to say, um, and how to say it, how to express yourself, how not to express yourself, when to talk, when to shut TF up. Yeah, you got it, Richard. There's no doubt about it. We all, we're taught how to be good little biological robots. And I just described hundreds of millions of people. Mm. And I'm in the process of unlearning that biological robot stuff and learning how to be a self-directing human being and a self-actualizing human being and a human being who can think and analyze things independently of having to seek a slave master or puppet master to do it for me. And I encourage you, and I think you're already headed down that same direction yourself, but I encourage those who are listening who may never have thought of it in just this way to begin thinking of life and our situation in it in just this way. And... And, and, and determining how they also may become a 
free person as opposed to a puppet or slave. Now, mentally and physically. Here, here, Richard, here, here. Now, so getting back to what's under D.C., I now understand that there's a beehive under Washington, D.C. Beehive. <laughs> a multi-level beehive uh, going down at a bare minimum one or two hundred feet, and I strongly suspect it goes down at least one or two thousand feet, and perhaps, in fact, uh, some of the documentation I've got uh, going back to the Kennedy administration <laughs> talks about going down 3,500 feet and making tunnels and things down there. Wow. And that was 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago. All right. Well, look, let's. Uh, we're at the bottom of the hour here, okay? So let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back, and let's talk a little bit about this. It sounds like, uh, it sounds like a great amount of this activity began... Uh, in or around the years surrounding World War II, or, ju- or, or just after World War II, maybe we can talk about the uh, the origins of some of this stuff. And then um, I'd also like to talk about the technology that's involved in making them, because as you you're talking about these things that are 50 years old that are outrageous, and we have to imagine the technology has uh, advanced dramatically in the last 50 years. So what are they capable of now? Let's uh, do it. Yeah, those are questions I'll have for you in just a few minutes. So let's. Uh, Come on back in just a minute, everybody. My guest is Richard Souter one more time. Hey, Richard, uh, is that 800 number uh, the correct one that's on the website there? I think so. Okay. That's, let's, that's, that's not for me. That's for uh, Adventures Unlimited Press in Illinois. And by the way, um, uh, they may not have an operator. I don't know if they have an operator there 24 hours, but uh, you can leave your contact information if you call and no one's there. And the really cool thing is, if you buy one of my books, they'll send you a free catalog, which is a $3.95 value in and of itself. They actually sell the catalog on newsstands, and every half year, because I'm one of their authors, they send me a couple of their catalogs. And, Mike, I spend a, a half an hour, an hour, just huh. reading through my own publisher's catalog because it's so fascinating. Well, I tell you what, there's there's just an absolute outpouring right now of fascinating information coming from all all kinds of different areas, and I just think it's amazing. Yes. All right. Well, look, that number is one eight hundred seven one eight four five one four. And like Richard says, if there's not an operator on uh, line, just leave him a message uh, uh, with the information, and you can also always get back to it uh, at uh, Richard's website at www.souderzone.com. And I'll have uh, Richard's information, of course, uh, up on uh, my website as well from here on out. So we'll be back in just a moment with Richard Souter. And in the meantime, we will play a piece of music here. This is Martin Lind. The song is called Night Owl. And he goes by the name of Basic. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes with Richard Souter. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit.
All right, that's Martin Lind, Basic, and the song is called Night Owl. This is Mike Hayden. You listen to Radio Orbit. As I said, my guest is Dr. Richard Souter. Information about him and his work can be found at SouterZone.com, S-A-U-D-E-R-Z-O-N-E.com. He has a number of books available, and we're talking about all of them tonight. Right now, uh, Richard, we are uh, in the midst of uh, information that was uh, actually included in your first book, Underground Bases and Tunnels, and uh, let's start to talk a little bit about the background, about how this all started. I know uh, the, the the Second World War and the post-war period were very significant. Yeah, well, of course, part of the impetus to go underground um, had to do with the development of uh, uh, atomic or nuclear weaponry, uh, first with the uh, by the Americans uh, in, in 1945 as a direct outgrowth of the Manhattan Project mm-hmm. during the World War II period. And, and having developed uh, atomic weaponry, uh, the Americans and, and everyone else, but especially the Americans, realized we'd better go underground because if we have this stuff, it's only a matter of time before others, uh, like the Russians and the Chinese and others, also develop um, this type of weaponry. And by the way, these uh, weapons make a big bang and you don't want to be anywhere near it uh, when it goes off so we'll go underground uh, to protect their critical infrastructure and personnel and so that was part of it right you got the EMP issue too the EMP issue is part of it as well the electromagnetic pulse issue uh, and the radioactive um, issue Mm. as well as the the shock wave and the blast effects which are stupendous stupendously damaging and harmful. Um, so there was that, uh, uh, you know, you had that that as a motivation to go underground. But then there were others, uh, other factors as well. Uh, just the, you know, the sheer, uh, for, for purposes of compartmentalization and carrying out uh, any type of, of black project or, or clandestine program, whether it involved hard engineering basic scientific research, political projects and programs, uh, espionage operations, whatever. Um, If it was uh, carried out underground, hundreds or even thousands of feet underground, um, the physical security uh, would be unparalleled Hmm. because you could very rigidly and strictly control access uh, through multiple uh, bank vault-style access doors with tumble locks to which only a few or a handful of people would have access, and so you could absolutely uh, control entree. Hmm. Um, And it appears that that's precisely what has happened, Hmm. and that is the situation where we are now. You don't get in unless you are an insider, and if you have to ask what's going on, you're not. Hmm. Um, So you and I are not insiders. um, and those who are on the inside are not saying very much. It's an indication to me as to the scale and scope of the underground and, as I, I've lately discovered in recent years, the undersea um, uh, aspect of these uh, clandestine projects that we have such a vast amount of paper and documentation that has slipped the cracks this has been a joint uh, effort on the part of uh, major corporations and also smaller corporations. 
uh, government agencies, large and small, well-known and not so well-known, and um, also other organizations, uh, non-governmental and non-military. It's not only the military involved underground. There are non-military agencies and organizations under, uh, uh, underground, and also, and my research is now strongly indicating, under sea, um, as well as non-governmental. Um, when you're in that realm, uh, there, there are many secrets, and it's amazing to me, uh, as many people as have come forward to speak to me, um, uh, I've, I've been surprised at the number of people that have come forward to speak to me. It's, it's, uh, it's indicative, of, I, I think, of number one, that there is a lot going on down there, and number two, um, at least some of those who have some knowledge, whether direct or indirect, of what's happening, have to be have to feel uncomfortable about either things they personally have seen or had to do, or seen others do or know about that they um, will um, uh, leak after a fashion, albeit none of them directly. Mm. Um, to people like me, I'm not the only one, but I'm certainly one of them that have been the beneficiary of this type of information. And um, it's 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 this this whole uh, impetus um, actually goes back, I believe, thousands, even tens of thousands of years. I believe there have been previous cycles of high so-called high civilization mm-hmm. on this planet that would be uh, civilization, human civilizations with um, uh, high technology, some type of machine technology, and capable of doing um, civil engineering on an impressive scale. I don't think we're the first. We may not even be the best, not by a long shot. We're just the latest, Hmm. in my view, in a long line. But in terms of our more recent history on this planet, I think uh, starting in World War II, because the onslaught as a Third Reich uh, as, a, as a tide of war turned against uh, the Axis and the Third Reich uh, in 42-43, and it became clear that uh, they they were in danger of losing the war, they began to move a lot of their sensitive operations, industrial and otherwise, underground. And the Germans went underground in a big way in the last few years of World War II. Right, right. Actually, they started going underground even before the outbreak of World War II. They, they they went even more underground during the course of the war. And um, there was an organization uh, that was in charge of that that is mm, roughly analogous to, in, in, in the American, uh, the contemporary American military structure to the um, Army Corps of Engineers. And that organization in the, under the Third Reich was called Organization TOTE, T-O-D-T. Mm-hmm. It was named after Fritz TOTE who was the father of the Autobahn, which was, uh, for its time, a very advanced highway system, and the highway system on which most modern expressways are based, mm-hmm. um, including the American interstate highway system, was after a move of, of, of two or three decades, in the post-World War II period, the Americans made essentially an Autobahn system here in North America, only we called it the interstate highway system. Mm-hmm. But Fritz Tote was the first to introduce this kind of highway system to the world, and it was built in Germany in the pre-World War II period. Uh, so he was a well-known and accomplished civil engineer and was tapped by Hitler 
when war broke out to take charge of Organization Tote, which carried out a lot of the vital civil engineering projects for the Nazis uh, during the war. And now uh, Fritz Tote, however, died uh, during the course of the war in a plane crash in 1942. And ultimately, one of his um, subordinates uh, named Xaver Dorsch uh, took over. At first, he was uh, answering to uh, Albert Speer, hmm. Speer, who was um, uh, his um, uh, commanding officer. But um, towards the last couple of years of the war, uh, Adolf Hitler decided to remove him uh, from the command of Speer, and uh, he answered directly to uh, Hitler toward, toward war's end. And Hitler tasked Dorsch, among other things, but he specifically tasked him with the construction of a number of immense, deeply buried uh, industrial uh, production facilities. Uh, of course, the Nazis uh, lost the war in '45, and uh, so all of this came to a halt, I think. See, I don't absolutely know, and neither do you, because at war's end, um, the Americans and the French and the English, but especially the Americans and the Russians, came swarming into the German-controlled areas of Europe and, and, and into uh, uh, Germany proper and just snatched up everything they could find mm-hmm. in the way of hardware, uh, any type of technology that worked, blueprints, drawings, designs. Uh, they kidnapped, arrested, uh, did whatever they had to do to put their hands on all the engineers and scientists they could. And the Russians bundled as many as they could back to Russia. The Americans bundled as many as they could back to uh, the United States under Operation Paperclip. Right, well documented. Very well documented. Now, under Operation Paperclip, um, the Americans um, also... And by the way, before I leave that immediate post-war period, I want to say... Um, that we truly don't know to this day um, what the Nazis, everything the Nazis were working on. Mm -hmm. Because there's still a lot that's classified from the World War II period and the post-World War II period. I mean, from the the entire early early late 40s, there's still classified information. And we don't know everything the Americans and the Russians and others found when they went into Germany and into the areas of Europe controlled by the Nazis. Uh, We just don't. Uh, We know some things. Um, We don't know all all the technology that was obtained, um, whether actually actual uh, uh, working uh, hardware or uh, hardware that was being designed or um, or, um, uh, theoretical uh, work. We just don't know. I mean, um, and, and the odds are that that we know less than we don't know. I don't. I don't even know how to quantify that, <laughs> but I don't have any doubt that there's quite a bit that hasn't been revealed right. to this day. I just don't doubt it whatsoever. Yeah. But I can tell you that one of the people um, that the um, Army Air Force at that time uh, specifically requested under Operation Paperclip was Xavier Dorsch mm-hmm. um, to be brought. Uh, to the United States uh, under op- under the auspices of Operation Paperclip, not only him, but some of the other um, 
civil engineers or as, as the paperclip documents I've seen uh, call them technicians hmm. um, to work on what was called the um, mili- American military's underground plant program. This is circa 1947, June of 1947. Um, so already then, they had what they referred to as an underground plant program uh, in the works and wanted to bring over um, the, the Nazis' best civil engineers, uh, the guys who were building uh, the uh, top-of-the-line stuff uh, at the height of the war. They wanted them to come here, and essentially, I mean, you don't really even have to read between the lines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Essentially, they wanted the Nazis to come over here and do for uh, Truman and the Pentagon what they had done for Hitler and the Third Reich. Um, it's bad if you do it for Hitler and the Third Reich. It's it's good if you do it for Truman and the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it happened. Oh, yeah. We did. We yeah. did have a massive program of underground uh, construction, and my research indicates it continues. All right. So um, we've got about ten minutes before the top of the hour. Let's talk a little bit about technology. How do they build them? All kinds of ways. Um, now, uh, the tried and true method is with so-called drill and blast. Mm. Uh, and this is a well-proven technology that's been used for decades in hard rock mining, uh, where you essentially uh, use um, drilling drilling rigs um, and you drill boreholes, uh, fill the boreholes with explosives and uh, put fuses in the explosives, uh, you know, fire in the hole. Mm-hmm. You explode the explosives, it shatters the rock, uh, you bring in machinery, you carry away the rock, and uh, there you have it. Mm-hmm. You've exca- you excavate tunnels like that, or chambers, large caverns, uh, whatever you need. That's one way you can do it. And then you can reinforce the walls and the ceilings of such tunnels or chambers uh, by putting what they call um, uh, roof bolts or rock bolts mm-hmm. in them, mm-hmm. which are essentially huge steel screws or rods that you screw uh, several feet into the rock and uh, then bolt that down real tightly, and it helps stabilize the rock and keep it from slabbing off or shifting. Um, and then you can also, um, and they frequently do, use something called gunite, which is a type of fast-setting concrete and so uh, you can also make a nice concrete cover over the bare rock, and that helps stabilize it too. So that's one way you can do it. And now another way of making tunnels is to come in with uh, a variety of tunnel boring machines. One of the uh, kinds that's uh, most in most uh, wide use is the mechanical tunnel boring machine, which has a circular uh, boring face. And I have pictures of some of these. In, in my books, in my first book, and also in my third book, um, they can be quite large. They can they can be hundreds of feet long with all of their trailing apparatus. Uh, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of feet long. Well, hey, I'm, I'm the actual cutting face can, can be anywhere from six or eight feet in diameter up to. I've seen citations for for, for uh, uh, tunnel boring machines as great as fifty five feet in diameter, wow. uh, but it's quite common to have them in the 15 to, say, 
20-foot diameter range. Those are very common. You would almost say a dime a dozen, but they can be even larger, 30, 40, 45 feet in diameter, which is humongous. And the power of these machines is enormous. Think of a huge, uh, enormously powerful uh, electromechanical earthworm, if you will, mm. boring its way, chewing its way uh, through the solid rock, hundreds of feet, even 1,000, 2,000 feet underground. And that's how these things work. Uh Richard, this picture that I'm looking at right now is on on your website. It's the uh, it's the Air Force Tunneler. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about that one. I mean, this is an astonishing picture right here. Yeah. Well, um, it means that the military has at least one tunnel boring machine because I have a photograph of it. Huh. I got that from the Department of Energy. I wrote to their Las Vegas office and made a request uh, for their for that photo. I had found a a citation for it somewhere else. And so I specifically requested it when I wrote to them, and they sent me that. They sent me that photo. Um, it's it's a great one. It is amazing. Uh, um, and that 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 I think was from uh, 1981 or thereabouts. Um, and what was going on at that time, if you recall, that was the beginning of the first Ronald Reagan mm. administration. That's right. And the um, the MX missile was being developed then, and they were uh, they meaning the Pentagon. Uh, were tossing around different basing schemes. Uh, one that they were considering was to make a hundreds of miles long um, network of, of deeply buried underground tunnels somewhere in the western United States. And the idea would be that um, you would keep the missiles down in this labyrinth of hundreds of miles of tunnels buried a couple thousand feet down. And... Um, you would shuttle the missiles through these tunnels, and in the event of a real live shooting nuclear war, uh, you would uh, hitch, hitch a missile behind a tunnel boring machine, and the tunnel boring machine would, uh, would bore out from almost a half a mile underground out of the side of a cliff or a mountain somewhere, and um, set up this missile and fire it off in retaliation. Huh. This, so it's a this, way to it's a way to hide missiles from from being destroyed from a from a, from yes. a launch. Huh. Yes. So um, that was the idea, and they were doing some test tunneling there uh, at the uh, nuclear test site in Nevada, and this was uh, one of the machines they were using. Now, um, amazing. I mean, and this machine is at least twenty five years old, as you say. This photo is from December eighty two. And they had to make it at least, I mean, the technology obviously involved in that machine has to be 30, 40 years old. Yeah. Um, the, uh, this, these, these machines are in use all over the world, uh, not only by the military, but by all kinds of governmental and non-governmental organizations and agencies for, for making everything, whether it's uh, tunnels for secret use by the military or whether it's... Um, uh, water tunnels for municipal water supply departments or sewage outfall tunnels. There's quite a number of them that have been made around the world, including in the United States. Or for subway tunnels or railroad tunnels or highway tunnels. I mean, uh, there's a lot of these machines, and they're in use in, in countries all over the world, not only in the United States, but uh, really they're quite common nowadays, and and it's well understood and and... Uh, developed technology 
Uh, it's a proven me- means and method of, of making um, tunnels, and uh, by God, they do. All right, look, I've got two questions for you. Um, the, the first one is uh, I've heard rumors or stories about uh, a tunneling machine that's nuclear in nature or atomic in nature. It sort of melts its way through or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, uh, I have a question about h- how much do we know about tunnel systems that have been built to connect existing caverns? It, in other words, it seems like it would make sense to me rather than blow out a big giant cave to go try to find some uh, some caverns that are natural and then just try to network between those. Is that something that you know anything about? Well, the first question uh, having to do with the so-called nuclear-powered tunnelers that um, nuclear subterranes is what they're called in the literature mm-hmm. that would melt their way through the um, subsurface rock and uh, create a, or a vitreous uh, tunnel lighting, lining because of the heat provided by a, a nuclear uh, power uh, plant or power core that uh, a miniature nuclear reactor that they would um, uh, actually vitrify the rock and make a, an obsidian-like, very, very pow- powerfully strong obsidian-like tunnel lining that would also be waterproof. And I've heard rumors about these. The closest I can come to documenting them is uh, research and design work that was done at the Los Alamos National Laboratories in northern New Mexico back in the mid to late 1970s. And there actually were at least three patents taken out for uh, uh, tunnel boring machines using uh, nuclear power uh, that would create tunnels uh, similar to what I've just described. Now, whether any of these machines have been built and are in secret use, I do not know. I can tell you that uh, the scientists and engineers who did this work at Los Alamos National Labs patented this technology uh, <clears throat> in 1979 or thereabouts. Amazing. Uh, if it is in use, it's been done secretly because I have combed through the open civil engineering literature, and to, to this date, I have not found any open reference to such machinery uh, being used. I don't rule out that it may be uh, in use uh, covertly or clandestinely in black or um, compartmentalized operations by the uh, military-industrial espionage um, uh, uh, complex. I can't say that that's the case, but I don't rule out the possibility. Okay. Now, the second question as to whether, um, you know, the military-industrial espionage uh, network has made use of uh, already existing underground caverns. I suspect they have, uh, but again, I can't prove that. Um, it would make sense, certainly, if you had a large underground cavern to make use of what already exists it would be uh, more uh, cost-effective than having to build it yourself. And my guess would be that some of that has happened. It's well known, for example, that the Appalachian region has naturally occurring uh, fairly large limestone caverns. Some of them are open to the public. I'm sure there are others mm. uh, that are not open to the public, and I'm, it wouldn't surprise me if some of them 
or have been modified for use uh, by not only the military but other agencies or organizations. And it would also not surprise me if some of them may have uh, may not have been also connected by clandestine tunnels with other facilities. Of course, if there are clandestine tunnels, by the very nature uh, of their being clandestine, you're not going to document that. Uh, it will remain in the realm of hearsay because I don't have any security clearances. I've been uh, not privy to any compartmentalized uh, information. I don't have any classified documents. No one has passed me any classified documents. If they did, I'd put them up on my website. I'd put them up on my website. Uh, I'd also uh, pass them to about 30 other websites within a 24-hour period, mm -hmm. and they'd be all over the Internet. Um, but I don't have any such documents. I do have some declassified or, or um, unclassified documents, but uh, th that's about it. Now, as for clandestine tunnels, though, I've heard many stories about them. Uh, the technology certainly exists to make them. The black budget is monstrously huge. Um, my best information uh, shows the black budget running into the trillions of dollars. Mm. Trillions with a T. Wow. All right. Well, look, uh, Richard, top of the hour again here. And let's come back and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, maybe usages. In other words, what, uh, why we'll go a little bit deeper into why they're putting so much effort into uh, this type of development. And also, uh, let's try to move forward to the present day about what we think is happening today, okay? Absolutely. All right, back in just a few minutes. My guest is Dr. Richard Souter. You can find information about Richard at www.souterzone.com. That's S-A-U-D-E-R-Z-O-N-E.com. You can also link there directly from MikeHagan.com. And we'll have this uh, interview with Richard archived up on the web in just 24 hours or so. In the meantime, we will play a little bit of music here from my friend Enrique Palmgren from Norway. Uh, his musical project goes by the name of Leek. We'll be featuring him for the entire program with Michael Tsarion. In the meantime, this is a song called Surplus. It's from his album Indigo Child. Check this one out. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's 1 o'clock, and we'll be back in just a minute with my guest, Richard Souter.
That was Leak. The song is called Surplus. This is Mike Hagan, and uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit. It's about six minutes after one in the a.m. on Monday. Actually, it's Tuesday morning now, of course, Tuesday, the 7th of March. My guest is Dr. Richard Souter, and as I've mentioned a number of times, you can find out information about him at www.souderzone.com, S-A-U-D-E-R-Z-O-N-E.com. He has a number of books available. We've been talking about much of uh, his work tonight, and you can find out more about it at the website there, okay? All right, um, Richard, thanks for sticking around. Oh, yes. And, hey, uh, I've got a couple of uh, questions that came in via email over the break there. And I think that they will sort of help us move into the realm of the of the present. So I'm going to mention them both to you here, and you can address them as as you see fit. Okay. Yes. Uh, the first one has to do with Denver International Airport, and this is one that I'm very curious about too, because I used to live in Denver, and and I've I've been there. I've seen some very strange things there. There were all kinds of strange stories a- around town when when the place was being built and all kinds of funny money involved and mm-hmm. anyway so that's one and the other question and as i say you can take these one at a time but i just want to get them both down here um has to do with site r mm-hmm. and uh well he asked is there a connection between underground facilities and the long line facilities does that make any sense to you, long line? Well, let's take the second question first. Okay. The long line facilities, I don't know what the long line facilities are. If um, if the person who who uh, asked that question uh, could clarify the question, I would appreciate it. Um, maybe they have some information or knowledge that I don't. And if they are able to enlighten us, I would greatly appreciate it. Um, in the event they mean if... If if they're asking whether Site R is connected by tunnel to other facilities, I can say that that is uh, compartmentalized information. I can't tell you with uh, a certainty that it is or is not. However, I can tell you that I have um, my mother lives in that part of the country, um, a, a very very close by. Uh, North of, of Gettysburg, which is not far from Site R, mm-hmm. um, it's less than 50 miles, and uh, in that part of the country, meaning in South Central Pennsylvania and and Northern Maryland, it's part of local law that there are tunnels underground that connect those sensitive facilities, such as uh, Camp David, which is in the mountains of uh, Northern Maryland, right. and Site R, which is not far from Camp David. It's only about 10 or 15 miles from Camp David, and um, 
Fort Ritchie, which is not far from there either. Um, and then FEMA has their National Fire Training Center between uh, uh, Site R and uh, Camp David. And then also in Frederick, which is um, literally only miles from Camp David as well, uh, the United States Army has their very sensitive uh, bio-warfare research facility. Um, and um, <clears throat> so you have all of those uh, sensitive facilities uh, very close together. And uh, Fort Detrick is the Army facility in right, right. Frederick. Um, and um, my guess would be all of them are connected by tunnel. Can I tell you that for sure? No, that would be my best guess. Okay. And it, it is part of local lore that there are tunnels in that region and that the bigwigs come up in the tunnels in their uh, black limousines from Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Bigwigs being, you know, president, vice president, cabinet officers, cabinet secretaries, admirals and generals. And that's what I mean by big shots. Okay. Um, and um, my guess would be that there's some truth to those stories. Um, the, those types of tunnels that are part of local lore would be consistent with uh, tech tunnels that would have been made in the 1950s and 1960s, in my view. Uh, my guess is that the more recent stuff would probably use um, high-speed uh, tube shuttle trains. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. All right, and look, this guy, he's, he's, he's on the ball because he replied, and he says, uh, he says, long lines refer to AT&T long line microwave tower, okay. ra- radio, coaxial cable, and fiber optic networks. I know what he's talking about. Um, AT&T in the, in the Cold War, Cold War period um, had microwave relay facilities all over the country. And um, the military uh, made uh, wide use of this and other, other parts of the American government as part of their... Um, emergency, uh, secure emergency communication system. And many of these AT&T facilities have an underground component uh, and, and, and in many cases that went down multiple levels mm, underground. Okay. Um, and um, while I don't work in any of these AT&T facilities and ostensibly um, this type of facility has been um, um, consigned to the technological uh, ash heap because of the advent of fiber optic cable communications and satellite communications. In actuality, I believe uh, that some of these facilities are still active, uh, but they've just been uh, downmoded, so to speak, perhaps just to deflect idle curiosity, among other things. But yeah, I suspect that uh, some of these, not all of them, but I suspect that some of the AT&T facilities, uh, underground facilities, may have been networked in with tunnels to some of these other facilities. Uh, that would not surprise me. Now, um, uh, <clears throat> remind me of the first question. It slipped my mind. Uh, DIA. The whole Denver question um, is very fascinating. And I will say, first of all, that there definitely are underground facilities in the Denver area. Um, first of all, Lockheed Martin have a couple of large uh, facilities right. in the front range right, right. Uh, to the west and southwest of the Denver uh, metropolitan area. Actually, they are on the fringes of the Denver metropolitan area. 
right up against the mountains. I have not gone in those facilities, but I've been to the front gates of both of them. And my best guess, based on all of my research, uh, is that there are underground facilities at both of those Lockheed plants. And that they're probably, again, this would be my best guess, there's some type of tunnel system running up and down uh, the front range of the Rockies, probably connecting uh, the Lockheed Martin facilities, uh, the Air Force Academy at Colorado Springs, uh, Cheyenne Mountain. Um, also, I would expect to be connected uh, to that, um, uh, the um, uh, Federal Center. Uh, which is not in Denver. It's west of Denver. If you go, uh, are you familiar with the De- Denver metro area? Yeah, I lived there for 15 years. Okay. Well, if you go out west between Alameda and Sixth Avenues, you go out west uh, several miles. Just before you get to the Front Range, you run into what's called the Denver Federal Center. It's yes. been there for years. Yes. It's still there now. Yeah. And there is an underground uh, facility at the Denver Federal Center. It's been there for many years. Um, and uh, it's part of the COG, Continuity of Government um, uh, Program. And it's, uh, I, I suppose at one time was run by FEMA. Now I guess, as I alluded at the outset of the program, it's been folded into or under the Department of Homeland Security. I haven't been, de- been there in a few years, several years, but uh, it is there and it's an active underground facility. The, in terms of airports uh, with underground facilities, I think, is it Stapleton Airport, the old airport? Yeah, that's the, that, that, that's the one that uh, Denver International replaced, yeah. Yes, well, I suspect Stapleton has an underground facility beneath it. Um, can I prove that? No, that is my strong suspicion uh, based on what I've uh, read and heard and been told. Um, now, so there are known underground facilities. Uh, in the Denver area, uh, most especially the Denver Federal Center. Um, now, as regards the Denver International Airport, I've visited it twice, uh, gone all through, taken a tour, um, uh, a guided tour with the, uh, uh, the one of the uh, administrators of the airport, a very high-level administrator, really? gave me a a personal tour of the airport. Interesting. Yeah. That must have took been a, something else. Yes, took about an hour of her time at my request. Wow. Uh, and her answers um, satisfied some of the questions I had, but raised yet new ones in their in their place. <laughs> um, there there are known underground tunnels at the Denver Airport. There are there's the tunnel that you ride when you go out to the concourses. Right, in the, the main trains. terminal. Right. It's a wonderful train. Uh, I love it with the propellers on the wall. Right. All of that. It's very futuristic. And um, So there's that tunnel. There are also uh, other tunnels for the baggage uh, trains, which also go to and from the concourses, uh, from the main terminal. And there are, of course, underground areas and tunnels for utilities, uh, for water, heat, uh, electricity, uh, fuel, that kind of thing. Okay. So, yes, there is an underground infrastructure at um, the Denver International Airport, part of which the public 
uh, can go into and must go into in order to use the airport for its intended function, which is to board and and uh, airplanes and fly here and there. Right. Um, and then there are parts of uh, underground infrastructure the public does not go into, but which um, uh, airport employees and maintenance personnel do. Now, there are many lurid tales out on the Internet and here and there that you will read and see and hear about uh, even deeper, uh, more esoteric and evil and dark levels where all all manner of um, strange and weird and illegal and and bizarre things are going on. Do those still more deep and secret levels exist at the Denver International Airport? I do not know. I personally have not seen hard proof that they do. I have read many a rant on the Internet alleging that these places exist. I have never seen hard hard proof proof that they do. Mm, I agree with you. Um, It's easy to stand up and say, um, or even better, with the relative anonymity of the Internet, um, you know, swear up and down on the proverbial stack of Bibles that, yeah, there's, you know, all kinds of weird stuff underground at the Denver International Airport. But I haven't seen any hard proof. Um, Could it be there? Sure. Right. Does the technology exist to do that? Yes. But is it there? I don't know. Okay. Um, that's the best I can say now. Is there Masonic symbolism in the Denver International Airport? You bet. Oh, heck yeah. Starting with yeah. the Masonic uh, cornerstone, or actually not exactly a cornerstone, but it is a Masonic stone of sorts uh, in the front of the airport, and I've seen that. But you know what? The Masons have been putting stones in buildings for Forever. centuries. Yeah. That's what they do. When a new building is made, a new skyscraper, a big new public building, you know what? The Masons have a way of being there and putting a stone somewhere or a memorial. Or it's like, you know, it's like dogs going down the sidewalk and <laughs> urinating on on everything they come to. It's like the Masons. You build it, the Masons will come and put their little thing saying, "Hey, we were here." <laughs> Why do they do this? I don't know, but they do. All right. And right, they well, did it at the Denver Airport. That's true. I've seen that little uh, that that little memorial. And it even and it even says something about the the new world, the new world airport. airport commission. Uh, what does that mean? I don't know. We're living in a strange world. No doubt. No doubt. Definitely questions. So, all right. Well, look. Uh, let's get back to the stuff that we do know about. Okay. Um, let's talk more about uh, uh, the bases that we know about, or at least. Uh, uh, the ones that we that, that we're relatively sure about, and, and and what we think is going on now in in some of these, and why it's such a big deal. Because obviously uh, we only know the tip of the iceberg if it's as compartmentalized and as deeply secretive as you uh, suggest that it is. Uh, so that means well, it's probably much I've bigger, able, right? Here's what I've been able to glean from talking to people, and um, I would give you better than fifty percent odds which is the best I can do, not being part of a compartmentalized program. Mm. Um, But from my position on the outside looking in, I would say that some of the more unusual things going on in these compartmentalized programs, we can assume that there will be the more or less routine command, control, and communication of the military-industrial espionage complex. In other words, they'll have their secure high-speed computing and communication systems underground. Okay. Uh, that's been down there for decades. It still is. So you'll have that at places like CIDAR and NORAD and 
SEMA bases and what have you. Right. But beyond that, which which we already know is there from movies and from general reading in the newspaper. It seems that there probably is back engineering or reverse engineering of captured um, UFO type technology. Really? This is, I'd give you better than 50% odds that that's going on. Um, secretive biological genetic engineering, cloning engineering programs yeah, yeah. and projects. Yeah, certainly that wouldn't surprise me. I would give you better than 50% odds of that. Mind control research programs and projects underground using both mental, purely mental technologies and also electronic and psychotronic technologies. And this is something you've written about as well. Yes, uh, no doubt in my mind that this is going on. And why would you carry out programs like this underground? Well, for purposes of secrecy, out of sight, out of mind, except in the case of mind control programs, it's the case of out of sight, in mind. Hmm. Scary, but true. My gosh. Um, in whose mind, you might ask rhetorically, why in your mind, of course. And the more stealthily and secretively, the better. Because how better to control someone's mind than to have them thinking thoughts that they assume are their own because they discover them in their mind. And, of course, if it's in your mind and you find a thought in your mind and it's your mind, it must be your thought. Hmm. But if we live in a world of mind control, then no, not at all. Just because you could discover a thought in your mind doesn't mean that it was generated there or that you're the author or creator of it. It may have been put there for you to discover and you, upon discovering it, assume because it's my mind and the thought is in there that it's my thought. Oh, no. Not necessarily true at all. Wow, now that's a creepy technology. Well, but welcome to 2006. Wow. And um, what this means is we, all of us, need to develop a very high level of discernment. What was it the ancient sages said? Know yourself. Mm, know thyself. How can you know anything unless you first know what it is that's knowing, which is yourself? If you don't even know yourself, how can you know anything else? Right, and how will you know when a thought arises that's not your own? Yeah. You can't otherwise. Hmm. Now, it's very easy to say. It is very... You know the hardest person in the world to get to know? It's yourself. yourself. The hardest of all. And so many... I've begun to realize that there are just millions of biological robots walking around. The average human being is a biological robot. Not really autonomously self-directed. Very much taking cues from others. Very much other-directed. Hmm. Not self-directed at all. In fact, the average person has not the faintest clue how to come up with an original thought of their own, on their own initiative. And then having had said thought, to put it into action and actually begin to construct an individual life trajectory based on their own independent, autonomously directed thought process. Hmm. The average person has not the first idea as to how to go about that. So the reality, first reality is to realize the vast majority of human beings, the vast majority 
are biological robots. They're on autopilot, just reflexively reacting to life. Um, and once you have that realization, you have to honestly say, well, you know, maybe I'm one of those. And that's the beginning of your self-liberation. And you know what? There's only one person that can free you on the face of the planet, and that's you yourself. You have to take the own, your own shackles off. You have to free your own mind and free your own body. I agree with you, Richard. And I, but, I, but I think that it's helpful to have people that can help you recognize that there are shackles there. That's one of the great uh, uh, years to realize right? that for myself. Right, right. And, and years. Yeah, and myself as well. And I think everybody has that sort of a story, people that consider themselves to be at least in the waking state or, or beginning to awake. I, 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 am, I, I am at some stage in the early waking process. Mm, I would agree. And I, and I I'm would, in an early stage. And, and and that's the astonishing thing. I'm 51 years old. I'm only now beginning to awaken. I'm only now beginning to realize that I've been so very fast asleep almost my entire life. Hmm. And 